because you could see this, this different perspective on life, right? That there was so much defining that happened through that challenge that they experienced. And I think, you know, that's ultimately one of the most amazing things that we get with the title of doc, right? Is that not only have you been entrusted with a very important skill, but that ultimately you've, you've walked the walk with the men beside you and then done your job and then come back to continue to share in that camaraderie. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Special Operations Independent Duty Corpsman Peter McGuire to Wardox. Pete has served and deployed with Fleet Marine Force Recon and was an instructor at the Joint Special Operations Medical Training Center. He is currently a senior enlisted leader with the 2nd Marine Reconnaissance Battalion. You can learn more about his bio on wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll learn about what it takes to become a Navy Independent Duty Corpsman and hear about Pete's experience training and employing with elite special operations units. Pete describes the life circumstances that inspired his passion in wellness and behavioral health advocacy. He describes how important it is and provides strategies to maintain peak performance and foster resilience, even in the most demanding of environments. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome independent duty corpsman, Peter McGuire to Wardox. Pete, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Pete, we always start with the question of what brought you into the military? My uncle, whenever I was in college and wasting a lot of my time and money, he basically confronted me and said, if you've ever thought about joining the military, you should do it right now instead of wasting your mom's money. And I got to say, that was pretty much it for me. I, I had always like admired the military. I mean, 9-11, like our entire generation was was so definitive in my mind, but I don't I don't know why I never pursued it. And then literally my uncle slapping me upside the head and giving me that talk. It really it, it put a lot of things into perspective in regards to like what what am I trying to express through my life? And and I think like a young man who's idealistic and doesn't have a lot going for him, the military ended up serving an amazing outlet for me to start to go through that self-definition process. So I immediately said, hey, I want to be a medic with the Marines. I had no idea that was a Navy corpsman. And and then that's kind of how that story went. Found a Navy recruiter and started pushing forward. So you, you go to the Navy recruiter, you tell them, I want to be a Navy corpsman. I want to be a medic. I mean, what, what was your, what was driving you to medicine at that point? Nothing of substance. <laughs> it was that seems like a career field that people need to do. And, and I got to say, I, I had a couple of buddies that went to, out of high school, they went and became Marines. And, and I think there was that aspect of taking care of the most hard, right? I think a hard is in resilient, hard is in aggressive and brusque. Okay. Taking care of hard people. That had been a large part of my, my childhood. I had a pretty turbulent childhood in a lot of ways. I think I lived in 24 houses before I turned 18. That was not military related. It was just us having a pretty interesting lifestyle. And one of the things that that really, I think, was ingrained in my mind at a pretty young age was the need to protect your family. I, I experienced some physical violence, saw some family members experience some very significant physical violence at a young age. And, and I think I always had that drive that strong and aggressive people can, can provide an environment within which you can be safe. 
And so I think what that kind of changed into as I got older is it ended up being, I wanted to be a part of a group that had that as like their core values. And honestly, from my limited understanding of the military, I mean, the Marine Corps was that, right? It was the, the toughest hoorah kind of guys, right? And so I ended up, I ended up choosing the route within which I thought that I could serve those people. And that wasn't like a conscious thought, but looking back, I think that that was sort of the process, right? Seeing a culture I wanted to be a part of and that I wanted to be able to, to serve and take care of people in it. So you went initially to U.S. Navy Hospital Corps School. How do you feel that your initial training prepared you to do what they were asking you to do? You know, to be completely honest, I think that the initial training, I think that at the time you get a school under your belt. And I will be completely honest and say that beyond getting it under your belt, everything else is on the job training as far as what, what is like the, the real meat and potatoes of the work, right? So I personally, you know, I'm, a, I'm a special operations independent duty foreman. And so that, that annotates that there is far more training after hospital course school that we go to. It's about a two-year pipeline, jump school, dive school, the basic reconnaissance course, then the special operations independent duty foreman course. That is essentially the 18 Delta Special Forces Medical Sergeants course. So whenever we talk about the initial training at core school, I think that they, they prepare corpsmen to do the, the normal corpsman jobs. And I think that I had a, a very similar experience to a lot of my classmates. It was 2008. And so Afghanistan and Iraq were a very real thing. And a lot of my classmates ended up leaving there, going to units and very quickly deploying, whereas I kind of took this different route. And honestly, it took so much longer that I ended up missing out on a lot of the deployments that a lot of my classmates ended up doing ahead of me. But what I will say is that, just like I'm sure both of you have experienced in the military, some of those defining relationships in core school were the ones that actually, I think, taught me the most lessons. So perfect example, there was a special operations independent duty foreman, SOIDC. There was an SOIDC chief who worked at core school. And and some of the, the conversations and the talks that I had with him as, a, as an E3, brand new to the Navy, trying to figure out what's going on, I, I still remember some of those conversations in regards to what the real job is actually like. And, and so I think that was my first real exposure to engaged leadership. That was, wasn't, wasn't only giving me a tool like, hey, this is how you put on a tourniquet, but they were talking to me about the mentality that comes with doing a job with excellence and doing a hard job well over time. And some of those, some of those early lessons, I feel like carried me through a lot of hard times. And we had a, a previous guest that, that said, kind of put it in perspective for me, for those really young hospital corpsmen, medics who now are on the battlefield and they're seeing bleeding in real life and people dying and living. And last year they were playing tuba in the high school band. <laughs> I mean, it's just like amazing to me that mm -hmm. transformation and how you could prepare anybody to be ready for yeah. what they're going to see in war. And just like with everything in the military, we set our processes in place based off of our, our lessons learned, our real world lessons learned. And there is this amazing process where you see someone go from this young person who knows very little to in a very quick process, becoming someone that I would hesitate to use the word subject matter expert, but I would definitely say the guy with the right tool at the right time. And, and I had that same experience where we would have, I would talk to my classmates who left. And then as a 19 year old going on their first deployment to Afghanistan or coming back from their first deployment to Afghanistan, having saved multiple Marines lives and, and being able to see, I think that was the part that kind of, I, I gravitated towards because you could see this, this different perspective on life 
right? That there was so much defining that happened through that challenge that they experienced. And I think, you know, that's ultimately one of the most amazing things that we get with the title of doc, right? Is that not only have you been entrusted with a very important skill, but that ultimately you've, you've walked the walk with the men beside you and then done your job and then come back to continue to share in that camaraderie. And I mean, that's the part about the military that you cannot replace in any other culture or in any other profession. And, and I, I think that's the, the real driving motivation in so many ways for, for all of us to keep on going. So you mentioned the term doc and, and we have on our webpage that doc is just a term that military members use to annotate someone who's in the medical field, regardless of, of what their specialty is. How does the hospital corpsman, and particularly the independent duty corpsman, fit within Navy medicine? And how do you describe the difference to people when they ask you? How is, how is independent duty corpsman different? Ooh, so independent duty corpsman, essentially, what that is saying is that you are capable of, of duty a duty independent of a direct supervisor. So for instance, there are IDCs, surface IDCs would be the, the appropriate name, that are on small ships, right? Like a, like a destroyer is a good example where you have a hundred man crew and there is not a doctor on that ship. It is a IDC. And that IDC is entrusted by a physician supervisor who he works under, but who is not co-located with him. That IDC is medically responsible for all the medicine that happens on that ship and for those people. And then you take guys like me with special operations, and that looks like deploying far forward to more austere places in support of special operations. You know, and ultimately it's, it's a different environment and it's a different mentality, but it's the same, it's the same approach to medicine. You're a physician extender. You're the guy who has the first answer, but who most likely needs some backup whenever you're talking about dealing with complex problems. And I think that's kind of the amazing thing, right? Whenever you look at the way that we go about doing war, well, we have we have a lot of great corpsmen, 18, 19, the younger guys, E1s to E4s, who are who are kind of getting their feet wet in operations. And then once they once they go and they deploy along a marine battalion or they go on their first ship shipboard deployment, whenever they come back and they've started to mature, then they get the opportunity to pursue one of the IDC routes if that's what they desire. And so it's it's a really cool community because one, no IDC course, no IDC school is easy. And, and so you end up having these really, really challenging processes where a guy can go and say, well, I'm dedicating myself to this. And then he takes on a responsibility, a real world responsibility that is so unique because he doesn't have the, the type of medical schooling that, that you would get in, in most Western medicine facilities. Tell us a little bit about your first deployment overseas. And were you an IDC or you just tell us any memorable experiences of providing care in that environment? I had a few very memorable experiences. So I was an IDC. I was a brand new E5. I'd been in the Navy for, I think, about four years, just over four years. And I was on a first, my first deployment was 2nd Recon Battalion. And I was the SOIDC for a recon platoon, Marine Recon. And man, a few really interesting things. One, I, I dealt with a pretty significant amount of behavioral health issues. There was actually a, a Marine on Marine stabbing that occurred in like literally the room right next to our gym. We, we were working out and we hear the medical emergency, medical emergency call. And 
and I'm working out and I see I was, there was a flight surgeon female that was right next to me and, and she just like darted off. And I was like, that's strange. Okay. Well, I'll follow. Right. And we literally walk into this next room and, and there's a Marine bleeding. He had uh, three stab wounds basically on his trap or on his right side. And then essentially the, I'll explain the story a little bit more effectively. A first sergeant was giving a, a disciplinary counseling to a sergeant. And then the sergeant basically decided to go homicidal. And so he pulled out his pocket knife and started stabbing him. And so the first sergeant felt like he was being punched in the back. And so he's kind of trying to turn in order to warp, you know, get the attacker off of him. And then he feels the, the sergeant come around and he doesn't realize that he's being stabbed. And so he feels like the sergeant is actually going to choke him out. And so he drops his chin, just like he's trained to do. If the guy's going to go on a rear naked choke, you go ahead and drop that chin down so that he can't access your trachea, right? Well, he drops his chin because he dropped his chin. Whenever that knife came across his mandible, it didn't actually go into his neck. It just went straight down his mandible. And so I walk into a room. There's a bloody Marine over here. There's a guy being restrained over here. And then we just kind of got to work. I got to say, I, that was one of the fascinating parts about that is that it, it reminded me of the harshness of military environments. It's easy to look at a place like Afghanistan or Iraq or a combat zone and say, like, man, like that's, that's hard living. What a lot of people underestimate is the kind of mental duress that you go under being in almost any military setting where you are deployed alongside a bunch of people. And so being on a ship for an extended period of time, that took a toll on that Marine. And I doubt he was homicidal before he went on that ship, but at some point in time, that changed and he made a terrible decision. So that, that was a very interesting thing for me as a, as a young man to realize, like, wow, like there's a, there's a very human element to taking care of each other, right? And then the next really interesting thing, this was 2012, Benghazi occurred. And so there were three ships that we were a part of in the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit. And the attack on the embassy happened in Benghazi. One ship floated off the coast of Benghazi. And my ship floated off the coast of, of Sudan. And, and the concern was that the embassy in Khartoum was going to be attacked. And so my platoon was essentially given the responsibility of the embassy reinforcement. And so here I am on my first deployment. And uh, the MU surgeon, who was an O5, he pulls me into his office and he says, if the embassy reinforcement happens, you're the senior medic. So tell me what your plan is. And I'm I'm on my first deployment, right? So I'm like, well, sir, I think I need some, some help on this one. Give me, give me some perspective. What, what, do I, what do I do to plan for this? And I remember going through that process with him and he was extremely patient and pulled in the med planner and, and we walked through this process and it, it just dawned on me the weight of the responsibility. Like all of the training that I had done was with the intent of doing the work. And now that I was being exposed to the real work, the real weight of it. Hey, if this fails, guess whose fault it is? That was whenever it just really settled into me, not only about how, how important my job was, but about, I would say, how valuable it was, not only to me, but to operations, right? In my recon platoon, there was one corpsman, and that was me. And if something went wrong, there was one guy that was going to be responsible for trying to fix it. And so I, I think that the, the embassy reinforcement did not end up actually occurring, but, but the pucker factor <laughs> that came with that planning was, it was so, so eye-opening. And it really prepared me for future deployments and, and taking things seriously and recognizing how bad, how bad things can get. And then beyond that, how prepared I needed to be in order to actually be able to serve effectively.
I'm in the army, so water is not something that I'm accustomed to from <laughs> an operational standpoint. But you have a qualification of a dive medical technician in addition to being a U.S. Marine Corps combat diver. Tell us about those two jobs and what special training you have to have to be a dive medical technician. So a part of becoming uh, an amphibious reconnaissance corpsman, right? That's we've gone through a, a name change recently, so that that can be a little confusing for people. But but essentially, through our our pipeline, our training pipeline to initially take this job, you have to go to Marine Combat and Diver School, and then you also have to go to the it's a dive medicine course down in Panama City. And I'll tell you, I, I always tell people, if you want to find God, go to dive school, because that's the most scared and most intimidated and confused I think I, I've ever been in my career. Like it was just so, it stretched me beyond so many boundaries that I expected to actually have to confront. And, and ultimately, it was a great experience, right? And, and so becoming a combat diver, that's the open and flow circuit, rebreathers, and, and ultimately, the, the responsibility is that, that we, we have that capability and that you bring that to operations, that you have the ability to do these kinds of inserts into missions and, and that you're proficient in. And then the, the dive medical portion, the challenge is that as an IDC, you're expected to be the guy with the answer on the X. And it turns out that there aren't that many divers that are doctors. And there definitely aren't too many dive medical officers who accompany special operations teams. It's guys like me. And so the importance of that job comes out whenever it comes to, okay, let's say that we're going to do this clandestine insert with our diving capability. Well, there's going to be an IDC there. And if anything goes wrong on the diving side, let's say that a guy gets bent or has an arterial gas embolism or the, the myriad of other problems that can happen in a situation like that, or gets shot as he goes onto a beach or coming off of a beach after something like that. Well, very quickly, that's the SOIDC's job to figure out and to fix. And obviously those, those are very complex situations, but that's ultimately the part of the job that honestly is, is, is a great challenge, but also a, a great drill to train to and, a, and a, a great opportunity to really, really just experience stress in a healthy way, right? Where you're growing through the challenge. So yeah, I, th I think that might sum up that dive medicine piece. So a big part of your career has been training tactical combat casualty care for SOCOM, NATO, allies, what kind of lessons have you learned over your deployments that you really want to portray to these people that you're training? What do you really want to get across to them when they come to the course that you're involved in? That's a great question. And what I would say is that you have to know your sequence. We always talk about knowing your sequence, right? Your, your mouth march algorithm, which is the tactical combat casualty care, the, the algorithm that we use there. And, and so it's, it's important to know the basics, right? That, that is always important. We always have to return to the basics. We have to be brilliant on the basics. But if you want to be really good, it looks like you knowing the basics so well that not only are they innate in your response, but also that, that you can see the entire situation fold out in front of you. Because very rarely is it, here, here's a great example of how not to do it. Whenever we do training, a lot of times you'll give someone a patient that is unconscious and say, oh yeah, he stepped on an ID, lost a leg, and now he's here. And then, and then the medic, the corpsman, they, they go through their, their training scenario and then you realize, oh wow, like that, never once did that patient scream or, 
or writhe in pain or try to take a tourniquet off or try to grab them. And then the one who's going through the scenario, the medic, he doesn't get the opportunity to experience the real stress of what that would be like. And that's where we, once again, we, we have to crawl, walk, run, but we need to get more people, especially non-medics and non-corpsmen to be comfortable in a chaotic environment where we have patients that are screaming, multiple patients. We have loud noises, gunfire. We have to make a movement, even though we know that it's bad for our patient. We're, we have to we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And then we have to recognize that that good tactical medicine is as good as you can make it according to the operational environment. We kind of get locked into this space where we're we're trying to make things perfect according to, I don't want to say Western medicine, that's far too broad. We try to make things almost sterile in the way that we train them. And that's the part that that I've always tried to disrupt, right? I, I love playing the patient because the entire time, as long as they're not using their pain medications in, a, in the appropriate way, I'll, I'll fight them the whole time. So I was, a, I was a guest instructor for the Uniformed Services University's, their gunpowder exercise back in March. And so these are, I think they're third year medical students that are coming up for like their first real tactical combat casualty care and prolonged casualty care scenario. And, and I would literally scream in their faces as the patient for 20 minutes straight. I would scream myself hoarse because the level of distraction that it brought them by me grabbing them and just, just being a normal person in pain, right? That they would forget to give me any pain meds for, for 20 or 30 minutes. And it would be six of these people working on me at the same time. And once again, these are med school students who aren't as comfortable in this environment as especially the, the medics and the, and the corpsmen of the world. But it, it was a great reminder for me that whenever we engage people to real world operational stress, it's real stress and it's complex. And it's something that we have to be able to do good work, but we have to be able to, to have a broad enough aperture to be able to appreciate the things that are happening around me without being too distracted by them to do good medicine. Are you able to get feedback from some of the units that you've trained that go on missions and then come back and say, holy crap, I was glad that you screamed at me for 20 minutes because that's exactly <laughs> what happened downrange. And I'm glad I had some preparation for what it's really like. I have had that. I've got a buddy of mine named Adam. I trained him whenever I worked at the, uh, the Special Operations Combat Medic Skill Sustainment Course. I trained him, I think it was probably about two and a half years ago. And then he was about to go on a deployment to Syria. He went on a deployment. He was in a, a MACV, which is one of our really tall armored trucks. It actually hit an oil slick on the road. And, and so it ended up spinning. And then there was a rollover. And one of the guys in the back seat did not have his seatbelt on. It turns out that wearing your seatbelt, no matter what vehicle you're in, no matter where you are in the world, is always a good idea, right? And so because he didn't have a seatbelt on and this thing rolled over, this guy bounced all over the place. And it was such a bad rollover that his hatch, his door popped open. And literally the guy sitting in the middle seat did have a seatbelt on, reached over and grabbed him and pulled him in. And as the, the vehicle fell onto the side that had the open door, it would have smushed this guy flat, but that guy in the middle grabbed him and pulled him in, but it still fractured. I think it was two of his C-spine. I want to say one of his L-spine vertebrae and then oh, something else. But there was, there was so much, once again, operational stressors. This is a, a vehicle rollover. And then not only are they trying to pull a guy out of a, out of a vehicle that was, you know, there's, has to, there's a lot of climbing involved with pulling somebody out of a, one of these vehicles when they're rolled over. 
But ceasefire precautions, worried about neurogenic shock, worrying about, oh man, do I have, do I have enough FE in case I've got to start giving this guy a presser? And I, I talked to Adam, the medic, afterwards. And he, he actually came, he called me when he got back stateside. He's like, hey man, I just want to walk through this patient I had with you because it was really, really on my mind. And then we sat down, he walked me through the AAR. And ultimately I was like, hey man, like you did a really good job. You did the thing. Like we ran a neurogenic shock scenario while you were here training. And then guess what you, guess what you were faced with? And then there you are not only doing good medicine, but you were equipped with the right things because, because we worked on this together. And, and that was one of the most validating things. So it's really easy to do tourniquet drills with guys and to kind of do the basics. But man, whenever you start facing more complex scenarios and seeing these guys rise to the occasion, oh man, there's nothing like it. Your story really struck home with me because I, I remember the time that I think I had the, I was most unprepared medically for deployment was I was on a FOB in Southern Afghanistan and I was very close to the point of injury for a soldier who came in and he comes in with his, his unit and it was this injured soldier and I actually ended up being multiple of them, but they're all screaming. They're all doing exactly what you're talking about. The patient's screaming, the buddies are screaming. What advice would you give people? Because you are now training people who are very close to the point of injury. And I say that because oftentimes us as physicians, as you'd mentioned, are remote from the actual point of injury. What advice do you give to people and how to handle that situation that you really can't train for well? It's so hard to train for well. It's all about control. That's the idea. You have to gain control. And, and that looks different depending on the situation you're in. You know, I've, I've talked to so many guys who have dealt with significant TBIs where either a guy was, was involved in a blast and has other injuries or just was involved with a blast that really rocked his world. And, and I tell them, I'm like, it's gain control however you can. If that's speaking calmly to somebody and allowing them to match where you're at, well, hey, like if that works, great. If it's someone writhing on the ground, refusing to let you put a tourniquet on, well, that probably looks like stacking three or four dudes on top of him so that you can save his life. And then we start looking at, okay, well, what does it look like to gain control with drugs, right? How can we quickly administer drugs? Do I have my drugs accessible? Have I trained grabbing my drugs while, while somebody's kind of pushing me and shoving me? It ends up being kind of a never-ending process of trying to find a way to train harder and gaining control. And one of the, one of the great scenarios that I used to do is... I would give a guy a burn patient and be like, hey, this guy's entire upper body was on fire. And, and then I would instruct the patient. I would say, I want you to scream and yell and fight him and like do all your best jujitsu moves, like do takedowns. I don't care. If this guy touches you, I want you to attack him. Do not do anything nice to him. Grab his med bag, throw it away. Like, I, I don't care. I want you to fight him as passionately as you can. And then, and then you would see... These guys, they go into like a different mindset whenever they're faced with that kind of confrontation because they know they, they can't just knock a guy out, right? You don't want to compound a TBI with another TBI. But you end up putting them in a situation where all of a sudden they're realizing, hey, like this is on me. Like it's, it's game time. And so you'll see guys like get into the mount, right? And then like use their med bag as they're basically pinning a guy down, instructing other dudes to hop on. I used to run a really great scenario. I, I would call that it. it would be a club scenario. And I actually used the, the knife injury pattern that I saw when I was on my first deployment. 
And what I would do is I would say, hey, you're with your special operations team and you, you guys went out to a club one night as you're coming off deployment. And, and basically one of the guys has, has a couple of drinks and then he goes to the bathroom, gets in a fight with somebody and gets stabbed. And I would use that same injury pattern. But the whole idea is that I would have, I would have a speaker on blaring club music. And then I would have the guy walk in there and I'd say, hey, you only have the medical items on you that you would have if you went to a club. And so it's like, okay, well, I don't have my med bag. I don't have my iPad. What does that look like? And then I have a drunk guy who's just been stabbed, who's really angry with loud blaring music going on. And then it's like, okay, well, hey, fix his bleeding neck and the, the pneumothorax that's developing in his chest. And, and it's not supposed to be like the most realistic of scenarios, although crazy things do happen. But what it's really meant to drive at is here is an environment where you have so much stimuli that is abnormal. And here you are so under-equipped that you are forced to improvise. And then you have a couple of helpers and then you just do it. Just go. And if that looks like shouting a guy, shouting at a guy to get his attention or trying to distract him with something funny or, hey, like somebody turn that music off. Hey, somebody turn the lights on. Hey, you go out to the truck and get my med bag. And, and all of a sudden, you've got a guy working through this process and looking at it holistically. He's looking at this whole problem that is so complex that he probably has never done a training scenario for anything like this. And then once again, you see guys rise to the occasion because they find ways to gain control and they find ways to, to limit the stimuli's effect on them. And, and seeing it in, in person is it's a beautiful thing because usually guys ramp up the aggression, right? Hey, you, yeah, right? And like, they, they do that thing, right? Where they they turn on this whole different mode. It's not just medical provider mode, but it's, I'm a warfighter and I'm going to fix you. Give me a minute to do it. It's awesome. So over the last four or five years, you've been involved with, as an instructor in the Joint Special Operations Medical Training Center. And we talked about this before we started the interview, things that you're passionate about. And you created a maintaining peak performance class, very focused on wellness, behavioral health, resilience. What motivated you to kind of get into that lane about behavioral health and resilience? So I, let's see, I had been on the teams for about, I guess I, I was about at my 10 year mark in the Navy and I was, yeah, I think I'd been on the teams for about seven years at that point. So I was coming back from my fourth deployment and I was already experiencing some burnout. Prior to the deployment, I really had had a real lackluster approach to my job. I was... I mean, I was just tired. During my time between second recon and third Raider battalion, I was gone about 70% of the time. I was married, had been married for the entire time I'd been on the teams, had two small kids and, and was really wrestling with all of that. And so I deployed to Somalia, had a great deployment. And then on the, on the last week of the deployment, right before we were about to come home, I, I got a call from my wife letting me know that my brother had committed suicide. And so that really sent my world into a very, very challenging place, right? Coming back from a deployment, which anybody that's ever been gone for a long time, the, the transition back home is a hard one. It takes a little bit of time and it, and it takes a lot of emotional energy to do that well. And I felt like that was such a, it was such a turbulent time for me to come home to that kind of a scenario. Like I literally, it was a very compressed timeline. I ended up getting home, I think two days after I was notified. Um, I didn't see my kids. I ended up, me and my wife just got a hotel room for the night so that we wouldn't confuse them with me being back for six hours before I got on another flight. So I flew up and basically dealt with my brother's remains and cleaned out his house, did all that stuff. And then, and then we ended up 
I flew back from, from Maine and then we immediately drove down to do the internment. And so that, that was like really hard. And, and it was, a, it was a big part where I, as the, the, the military man of the family, I really, I took a lot of them on my shoulders and, and tried to be there for other people in the same way that I had been on deployment, right? Like you try to be the, the, not be the standard, but you try to be a bulwark for other people to be able to rely on. Right. And so so that happened, came back, and then transitioning was really hard. And transitioning, honestly, with, was not going well for me and my wife. She ended up getting pregnant. Literally, that one hotel room, that one hotel night, whenever I got back from deployment, was the night that she got pregnant. So she's, she's going through pregnancy with her third child. And then I'm very messy emotionally, trying to process grief, trying not to be burnt out, really confused by all these things. And so it ended up kind of culminating with us talking about divorce for the first time. And that was a shockingly painful conversation to realize that we were having for both of us. So I ended up going, well, my wife convinced me that we needed to, to go visit my mother. And so we went up to visit her. She was having a ton of challenges with recovering from grief as, as is completely warranted, right? But we went up there and then literally we came home from that. And the day I got home from that is whenever I was notified that there was a, a C-130 plane that had crashed in LaFleur County, Mississippi with seven Raiders on it from 2nd Raider Battalion. And uh, one of those guys was HM1 Ryan Lowry, who was an SOIDC as well. He was a guy that I had served with in 2nd Recon. And whenever I got the news of that, it felt emotionally very similar to how I felt whenever my brother died. It was just this moment of like, oh my God, like what, what can I do to help? Right. And, and so I volunteered to be a part of the team that went down to the crash recovery and collected all the, all the things associated with a plane crash. And so I, I volunteered to do that. I remember my wife, she asked me a really, really important and wise question in hindsight. She asked me, can you emotionally handle this right now? And I said, what I believe every special operations guy says in, in response to situations like that, I said, it doesn't matter. This is important. And so I ended up going down there and it was a super hard time. I mean, literally we're looking at the impacts in the ground where these guys had hit and picking up guns and picking up all the things doing like loading, loading all the caskets up on the bird. I mean, it was so, so somber, so challenging. And then basically I, whenever I came back, I, I had an emotional breakdown. Remember I, I talked to my command and I just said, Hey, I, I don't remember what feeling good feels like. And I don't really know what to do with that anymore. And I was, and it was amazing. Marsoc rallied resources to me. And uh, Marsoc's Marine Special Operations Command, my, my leadership there rallied resources to me and gave me the space that I needed to kind of process through a lot of that. And ultimately, I was able to kind of kind of bounce back. And, and I, I took orders over to Fort Bragg at the Joint Special Operations Medical Training Center to go be an instructor. Once again, my wife was from Fayetteville. So I thought, hey, this is going to be a good break for us. This is going to be a good time for us as a family to recharge. And then I got the opportunity to, to teach at the Special Operations Combat Medic Skill Sustainment course. And, and I had a conversation with the primary instructor there. And I said, hey, like, has, has anybody ever thought about doing a behavioral health class? And just, just talking about more of a break the stigma behavioral health class than like, hey, let's talk about all the realms of behavioral health. So it's just trying to get the conversation going and, and kind of showing medics like, hey, it's okay to not only be challenged in this area in your own life, but here, here are some, some tips of the trade that I learned about myself that maybe would help you in helping somebody else. And I got great support from them, uh, from my primary instructor. And so I, I built a class based around my own personal experience that I had experienced literally a year before. 
And then I, from that, I got an invitation to go to the Joint Special Operations Command to one of their units. And I was able to go through their wellness program. And what I did is I, the wellness program was run by some of the best performance psychologists and therapists and counselors in in the military right now. I mean, like phenomenal folks. And I, I basically took this week-long wellness course and I tried to condense it and add it to my class. And the whole idea was, if I could talk about the problems that we all end up facing, everyone hits a wall at some point in time. If I can kind of remind everybody that we're human and, and then empower them with wellness content, right? The idea of like, optimize your sleep, optimize your nutrition, have healthy relationships. Here are some tips on how to do that. Let's look at developing our attention and being more cognizant of, of our essentially psychological space and allostatic load, right? Our stress load. Then ultimately, if, if, if I teach these guys this and hopefully it'll empower them and catch on and they'll be able to go back as the medics on teams to then share that, that knowledge to other folks. So we called it maintaining peak performance. I ended up giving it there at that schoolhouse for about yeah, two and a half years and taught a ton of folks and, and have had the opportunity to continue to teach guys. And, and I got to say, it's, it's really cool because special operations, medics, and corpsmen, they kind of fall into almost two categories. You have the younger guys who are really obsessed with like ramping up their performance. Like, I want to be the most optimal guy that I can be. And that's great, right? That's important. And then I would have the older guys. And the older guys would be like, man, thank you for sharing your story. I'm wrestling with stuff that I experienced three deployments ago right now and having somebody else kind of be, being willing to open up and be vulnerable about it. It's very encouraging for me to go have a real hard conversation. I built the class with Lieutenant Colonel Mike DeVry, who is, I think, currently the JSOC command site. But he was actually giving me therapy while I was an instructor there. And then I ended up building this class. And I was like, could you take a look at this and like let me know what you think about it? And and he ended up sitting through it and, and watching it. And and he was, he was so encouraging and, and helped me to refine so much of it as as, as we went along, making sure that it was trying to stay as, as accurate and relevant as good. And he, he said something that I'll never, I'll never forget. He said, it's not that what you're teaching them is like this mind-blowing, cutting-edge stuff. It's the fact that you, one of their peers and someone that they have so much in common with and that they respect in a very different way than they would respect a, a specialist looking in from the outside, you're telling your story. You are equipping them. And you're going to get such a radically different level of engagement than if I got up there and said the exact same things. And then, and then we watched that unfold. And I believe that. I believe that there is something so powerful about not only making resources culturally relevant, but having, having champions inside, like cultural champions inside the organization pushing for these things. So that, that was basically maintaining peak performance in a nutshell. And I've continued to give it and we've, we've built some other products since I've been at the second Marine division, but ultimately, you know, it was, it was such a rewarding thing to see these seasoned experienced warriors being willing to have hard conversations about the fact that they couldn't talk to their wife anymore, or about the fact that they had regrets from things that they did on previous deployments that they are just now starting to wrestle with. And then because somebody decided to start talking, they decided that they wanted to start talking to, and they went and found help. And I got to say that those are some of the most rewarding conversations I think I've had since I've been in the military. So let's expand on it just a little bit, because 
This not only applies to marine medicine, but it applies to military medicine as a whole because you serve as the wellness director for the Joint Trauma System. Tell us about the wellness program and how this position aids the Joint Trauma System. That all started whenever I had a conversation with the deputy surgeon, Shane Jensen, whenever I was at the Special Operations Medical Association conference last year. And and we started having this conversation about, hey, what, what does it look like? What does it look like to to take wellness as a concept and then begin the propagation of good baseline education. And so the conversation developed and we, we continued to talk about it. We continued to talk about how we could prioritize it. And then that turned into essentially him saying, hey, like, well, why don't, why don't you be the guy and we will we'll start pushing this forward? And so what was really fascinating about all of that to me is that and fascinating, but also extremely challenging. That was my gateway into being on the, the Joint Trauma Systems Behavioral Health Working Group. And, and this is, once again, not, a, not in any way a negative criticism of that working group, but the challenge that I saw whenever I saw the working group is that there was no enlisted medic or corpsman perspective on the working group. And this was the intent of the working group was to design a clinical practice guideline that is meant to be canonical content from the JTFs, right? It's meant to be the stuff. And as I read through the working group CPG that they created, I, I had concerns and it was from the perspective of, hey, like, here's the guy on the ground. I see what you're, what you're potentially going to equip me and my peers and my subordinates with. And, and I want to make sure that you have my perspective on what you're touching. And so what ended up coming out of that is they were extremely receptive, wanted my perspective. And, and not only wanted my perspective, but they wanted to know the limitations of, of what, what the real world operational picture looks like as compared to what they were seeing from the back. Interesting question that came up was we we're talking about the idea of restraining someone, right? Hey, if somebody has a psychological breakdown, the question was, do you have some kind of security element that is trained in the appropriate use of physical restraint? And my answer was, well, some units, yes. A lot of units, probably not. And what real restraint looks like is a bunch of guys jumping on somebody and then figuring it out from there. And it was, and, and it brought up this interesting kind of gap that we had between essentially what we would, what we would hope to do in an optimal setting. And then the realistic, oh man, I've only got a few people to deal with this and it's about to get messy. And so, so the, so the work that came out of that, I think it ended up being a very great direction for the conversation. And so my involvement as essentially the wellness lead, it, it ended up being trying to, trying to share the perspective of what the people who are actually going to use this stuff will have. And so one of the big challenges with a topic like wellness is that essentially you have all of these different areas that have subject matter experts. So for instance, right, if we're going to start talking about performance psychology, well, I'm not a psychiatrist, nor am I a performance psychologist. We're going to talk about nutrition. Well, guess what? I'm also not a nutritionist. And so we end up having to collaborate in a, a far more, I guess, a far more creative way where, where people are willing to have conversations that might make them uncomfortable, right? Like if a, if a psychiatrist says, well, this is the way that it should be done. And then, and then I have someone on the other side of the fence, either maybe a, a combat medic or a corpsman saying, well, hey, I appreciate your perspective, but in real life, that's, that's not how it can work because of X, Y, and Z. Well, they have to collaborate in order to provide better solutions. And, and it's the same thing, right? If you, get, if you get five docs, even of the same specialty in the same room, there's going to be some things that they don't all agree on. And so I think that's the part about wellness as the concept that is such a challenge. And that ultimately, 
the the big victory in my mind is that the JTS is is willing to to push forward with this because they see the importance of it. That it's it's a concept that needs to be explored and needs to be fleshed out, and we need to do it in a culturally relevant way. I think that things are moving in a great direction, but I have to say it, it is still a very new development. And so I think we're, we're still waiting to see kind of what some of those concrete realities and products are going to end up being. So oftentimes people do encounter situations in life where you'd mentioned gaining control is important, but where you feel like you lose control, right? Where the, the circumstances of your environment take control over you, whether that's emotionally or otherwise. What would you tell people... From your perspective, from having gone through significant life events, is the resources available to them? And what is the first stop that you would tell them, you need to go here? The first stop is whoever your closest friend is. Absolutely. That's the first stop. Everyone needs a friend that they can talk to about anything. Firm believer in that. If, if you don't have an empathetic, close friend, you need to find one. Like you, as a human being, need to find one. That's the first thing. Then once you have that, essentially what that does is it gives you not only the emotional backstop, right? To be like, okay, am I just having a moment? Or from someone else's perspective, is this becoming kind of a consistent thing about me? Then you can start looking at what those resources would look like. In the military, we've got a billion of them, right? And usually that starts with either talking to medical or having a conversation with, let's say, your unit chaplain. Those are the two two great starting points. You've got resources like Military One Source. There's a thousand nonprofits out there. There's so many apps. Honestly, it's kind of exhausting to, to go through all the resources. But the bottom line is that there are a ton of them. And if you get to the point where you can be vulnerable about the weight and the pain that you are carrying, what you'll realize is that as you open up to not only your friends, but also to people around you, that you're going to see that there are so many resources available. That's one of the beautiful things about, honestly, the newest, the youngest generation that we have becoming adults right now is that there is such an open conversation about mental health. And there are pros and cons to that, right? But the fact is, is that it's become very popular to be able to talk about it. And, and that gets me excited because hopefully that means that as we are, as we are struggling with the weight of our life, that we were given the opportunity to push forward in an effective way where we are, where we are going to be able to not only, not only grow through this suffering, but that we're going to become empowered and learn and, and increase our wisdom by having gone through the suffering. My signature line in my emails right now is serve excellently, suffer well. And it's the idea that if you can suffer well, if you can go through true pain, and then you can take the perspective and the lessons that you've learned there, then you can serve excellently. But you can't, you can't serve excellently without having suffered well. Your passion is amazing. And now that you've become a Navy senior enlisted leader, what is some of the best advice that you've received in your career? And how would you advise individuals who are interested in following a similar pathway in military medicine that you've done? It would be that whenever we look at the greatest challenges that people are facing, it usually has to do with self-worth. Like I know so many guys that go into special operations or are high performers who become doctors, psychiatrists, or star athletes, whatever. And they do it because they're chasing self-worth. And you see a lot of leaders do that too, right? And so the problem is that whenever you chase self-worth, you end up finding it from, from places usually that you probably shouldn't. And I know that that can sound very esoteric and, and kind of strangely conceptual. But, but the thing that I have found in my career is that the, the more that I, I, 
I focused less on myself and I, I tried to focus on serving others. What does it look like to give to others? What does it look like to support, support the mission, support the organization, to find an opportunity to be value added, as one of my mentors says, be value added in whatever room you walk into. Then you start to realize that the team is so much bigger than you and that you end up giving in such a different capacity. And specifically, whenever it comes to military medicine, it looks like you have to know your job effectively and then continue to challenge yourself and have a growth mindset. And anytime you start feeling comfortable, find the people around you that are willing to get you uncomfortable so that you can grow. And if you don't find good mentors who are willing to do that and willing to, to push you in, in strange ways and, and kind of bust the rust at times, then you're going to miss out on growth opportunities. And it goes back to that whole idea of suffer well. Find the areas in your life that you need to suffer in in order to grow. And then once you've done that, you'll be able to actually give something back. Your most recent deployment to Somalia, you had a mass casualty event. Can you tell us about that event and the lessons that you learned from that experience? Let's see, it was a coordinated attack from Al-Shabaab, which is the big terrorist group over there. Multiple IEDs placed and essentially it hit, it hit our partner nation pretty hard. And so we were actually surprised. There's really poor communication whenever, whenever we started receiving patients at like the, we called it a clinic. It realistically was just a couple of open rooms with no supplies in it. But we had guys go out to do training. We knew that the attack had happened, but we hadn't heard any reports of casualties. And then I had a guy who was out there training saying, hey man, did you know there's like some bodies just laying around in the clinic? And I was like, ooh, no, I didn't. Hey, let's figure that out. And so, you know, demobilized. And I, as the, as the SOIDC, I went in there and, you know, we had, uh, I would say we had two urgent patients, three patients that became expectant. No, I take, take the back. Two patients that became expectant. And then I guess the rest of them were minor in degree. And so what it, essentially what had happened is this attack had happened. The quick reaction force from the Somalis, they hopped into a truck, drove there, hit an IED, and then it just blasted this truck and threw guys everywhere. And so, so that was my first real mass casualty. I mean, you trade it a thousand times, right? But that was the first time where it was like, okay, game time. And one of the big challenges, obviously, is getting good organization early, and then it's marshalling resources to you. And, and I have to say, looking back, there were so many aspects about it, but I wish I had done better, right? And I think, I think we all do this, right? I think this is a natural process whenever it comes to any job that you train hard to do. But I looked at it and I said, I got decent organization done. And then because my, especially my severe TBI patients were presenting in such a, I would say an atypical way in regards to the way that I had trained, my patients were essentially, they were, they were awake, but not speaking and they looked so comfortable. I think that was one of the biggest parts that threw me off is that every time I trained a TBI patient, it was either somebody that was completely out or it was somebody that was kind of like your annoying patient, right? Where they'd come up and like be dazed and like try to grab your stuff. Like that's a common theme that we have whenever we train our trauma scenarios. And these guys would sit there and they'd like kind of take a nap and wake up and just kind of stare into space. What it really made me realize was that my understanding and my exposure to TBI patients as a whole, it, it didn't give me like one, it was very limited before this incident happened, even on my other deployments, I didn't have to deal with that problem very often. And so dealing with these patients, it really, it, it ate up a lot of my bandwidth because I'm looking at them and I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly what it would look like to, to get them better. But I'm like, ah, oh, maybe they're not that bad. And I have all these other pressing problems. I've got these guys that are really jacked up. I better go work over here. 
And then these guys are in the corner and I'm just like, ah, I don't feel good about them, but we'll get to it. And the challenge that I went through is that just like anybody that's been through a high stress scenario, you go through a time warp. And so I was the one coordinating the medevac. I was the one trying to render patient care. I was the one trying to do the logistics and trying to pull resources to me. And so I ended up getting so distracted doing so many things that by the time that these patients trended down, obviously it was, we were in this for an hour and a half, two hours. And as soon as I realized, oh man, this is, this is getting significantly worse. I grabbed a satellite phone and I called my, my soft forward surgeon. Oh man, Major Will Bynum. I called him and I said, Hey sir, I've got a mass cast. And he's like, okay, what do you need? And I said, I need to talk to an ER doc about a CBI protocol because honestly, I'm so mentally frazzled right now that I, I feel like I'm becoming incompetent and I'm worried about that. And he said, okay, give me, give me five minutes. And so he went and he found an ER doc and he handed him the phone. And the ER doc, he, I remember he asked me, he said, okay, what are the glassocoma scales? And I was like, I, I, I don't know. And he's like, okay, describe what they look like to me. And then I just, I just started... Just started giving him, hey, well, he's kind of sleepy. Yeah, he pulls back whenever I try to stick him with an IV. And, and it was so cool because that ER doc was, he was patient with me and, and he walked me through the protocol and it was my first time pushing hypertonic saline. And I was like, hey, does he need it? Am I going to do something else? Is something wrong? Is, is, is it going to exacerbate another problem? And, and he's just like, hey, like, trust me, no, push it. And so, uh, and so with that patient particularly, he would, he would wake up anytime we tried to stick him with an IV. So I literally stacked like six Somalis on top of this guy, pinned down his hand, and then got an IV on the back of his hand. And then I started the hypertonic. And then uh, about that time, the, the bird was rolling in to come pick these guys up. And, and so hypertonic's flowing, the bird's rolling in, and then we get a call saying, hey, it looks like the base is about to be attacked. And so it's us trying to shuffle these guys under the bird and trying to reset our resources and get to the, get to the next thing. It was such an eye-opening and humbling experience for me because you know, it was one of the real first opportunities where I, I truly felt like, like it had to be more than me. I had deployed in team environments. I had done cool special operations guy stuff. But it was the first time where I had a situation where I was like, I am not the full answer to this. And I can't be. My bandwidth just got eaten up by four hours of distractions and challenging problems and self-doubt. And then having the resources available and having the cognizance to just say, I need help. Please, somebody help me. And then actually being able to make a phone call and, and get help. Man, I'm so appreciative for that. And that's where teleconsults... I just listened to the, the podcast you guys did with Jeremy Pamplin, who is awesome. And I believe that telehealth, teleconsultation, I mean, wow, what a resource, especially in, in today's world. And that was, that was the first time where I actually looked at that and I said, oh my God, like this is a skill that we have to, this is, this is a conversation that we have to have early and regularly if we're going to do it well. You stole my question. I was going to ask whether or not there was advanced teleconsultation out there because one of the things he had mentioned in his podcast was sometimes it's not that you can't, you're not doing the right thing. It's that you just need someone to reassure you that you've done the right thing so that mentally you can release so that you can then move on to take care of the next patient. Absolutely. One of the big things that I talk about in my maintaining performance class is I talk about the autonomic nervous system, right? And, and here's the challenge whenever it comes to these challenging situations is that you are stressed out. And that looks like your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight, engaging in such a way to where it's trying to optimize your behavior, right? If there's a tiger in the woods coming at you, you don't want to be thinking about what you had for breakfast. You want to think about that tiger. And so 
your aperture, your total picture of what you're seeing, it tightens in and becomes far more limited because you're focusing on a problem. So the problem with that is that if I get so focused on this problem that not only does it burn a lot more mental energy, but that it also prevents me from getting a good clinical picture, a good opening of that aperture so that I can appreciate all the other things that are going on. And I think that that's such a, such a big part of why teleconsultation is so important is because when you start getting racked with self-doubt or you start worrying about, oh man, like, did I miss it? I think I did that right. Oh, was that the right dose? You can start crippling yourself very quickly. And sometimes it's exactly that. You just need somebody to be like, hey man, what'd you do? Okay, good job. Next. And then, and then it just gets the process going. Because if you can't bring that parasympathetic nervous system back to where you're actually calming down, then you will lock yourself and cripple yourself to actually doing good medicine. And if that gunpowder exercise, I saw that a lot. I would grab these doctors and just start shaking them. And I guess technically they're not doctors yet. I'll put that caveat, right? But I'm grabbing them and shaking them and screaming at them. And I would see a team of six people who are competent, intelligent, and highly trained become paralyzed. I made, I think, two or three students cry in that iteration. And the thing that I was trying to convince them over and over again, I'm like, good. It's a good thing that you cried. One, because it shows people where you're at. And two, actually emotional catharsis through those physical ways of expressing yourself ends up being a parasympathetic response that calms you down and opens your aperture back up. We look at so many things and we say, oh, well, that's, like, that's weak. Oh, you shouldn't need to take a break. Oh, like, don't worry about sleep. Go harder. And all you're doing is you're ramping up that sympathetic nervous system response and, and disabling yourself from making better decisions. And so, yeah, so I think having, having somebody in your corner, oh my God, you need it. And if that's a phone call away, well, you better pick up that phone. One of the things one of our guests, Jim Zarnick, had mentioned is that when your sympathetic system does get ramped up, if you maintain good fitness, that it won't ramp up nearly as high because your body can handle the stress of the sympathetic activity much better. Yeah. Colonel Zarnick, first off, just to say it, he's the best hugger in the DOD. He hugs everyone that he meets. And I just want to say that's the coolest thing about that guy. He was at Gunpowder as well. I had a phenomenal experience meeting him. Lots of respect for him. So about that, right? Physical fitness, obviously a key thing, but here's the challenge. Once again, this is why I, I'll get on my wellness soapbox. So it's really easy for special operations guys to be really fit. What's really hard for them to do is to have self-restraint. So let's talk about Everybody loves alcohol, right? Such an easy self-medication. That's for all of our culture, right? Well, if you have one drink, that affects your sleep. And whenever we start looking at what that actually looks like in regards to your response times, your testosterone levels, like so a myriad of things that change based off that one thing that we like to do at night as we calm down. Well, what you recognize is that even if your physical fitness is high, your ability to go through stress effectively if, if you don't look at other things affecting that, then ultimately you have missed the forest for the trees. And, and that's the part where a great example I love is the idea that if, if, you, if you actually get in an argument with your spouse and then go to work and you don't think about your spouse and you don't think about the argument, there have been studies that have shown that you are less optimally and emotionally available throughout your day. And, and once again, it, it's, about, it's about that. There's so much that goes on in our subconscious that that does not empower us to be excellent. And that's ultimately the whole reason I have my whole maintaining peak performance concept. And we created a booklet called Maintaining Peak Performance. The whole idea was to give people the, the major concepts for each of these areas so that we could take that holistic perspective 
and, and appreciate not only fitness, but sleep and nutrition and relationships and everything. And we did it with the idea of like Sun Tzu's art of war, right? Like give them three main things that make sense and that are easy to understand. And then if we give that to them, well, then they're going to try to do those things well. And then hopefully that piques their interest so that they could actually go and do more. So, so that's my one little plug for the product we made. But, uh, but yeah, I got to say, whenever we start looking holistically and whenever we start talking to people that have walked the walk, Colonel Jim Sarna, right? That's a doctor that I'm pretty sure he went to ranger school. He went, he's got a tat, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, like, and this is a served in special operations for however long. That's a guy that knows what he's talking about. And we need to pay attention whenever we see the generation before us and the people that have been successful. God, we need to pay attention when they talk. So let's fast forward 100 years from now. And when the history books are written, what would you want your legacy or the legacy of SOIDC McGuire? What what would you want that to say? I would want it to say that everyone knew that he cared about him, that he really genuinely cared. Honestly, I, I would probably leave it at that. You know, I think one of the things I have my guys do is they write their eulogy. And I, I remind them of the story of, I think it's Marcus Aurelius that would talk about, remember your death, right? The idea of memento mori, like count the cost of your life, but also recognize that the end is coming. And I think there's something so prescient about that, where all of a sudden we get this opportunity to really ask ourselves what we value. And I think that whenever I look at my legacy, right, I'll tell you, I one of the big things I tell every single sailor that works for me is I tell them, I'm less worried that you're a, a badass operator. I'm less worried that you're a phenomenal sailor. I, I just want you to be a better man. I want you to find a way to be a better man. Because if you if you become a better person and a better man, then ultimately you will inevitably be a more badass operator. You will inevitably be a better husband, be a better father, be everything else. And yeah, I think, I think that would be it. And ultimately, you know what? I got to say, I love, I love this wellness thing. I love, I love talking about it. I love collaborating with people on it. I love just trying to empower cultural experts and finding their own solutions and not being intimidated by the bureaucracy that can feel, it can feel so intimidating, right? Like I'm, I don't have a degree behind my name that has anything to do with medicine or anything to do with psychiatry. I'm, I'm just another guy. But it turns out that whenever we start listening to the people that are embedded in culture, we find that our solutions that we've created from the outside looking in definitely have not only a different flavor, but a different impact than we, we could have hoped. I believe in the power of the senior enlisted. I'll tell you that 100%. I believe in the power of the senior enlisted and the importance of it. And so I, I hope that that's a part of it. I hope that I, I have the ability to not only spread the gospel of wellness, but that that enables people to be better humans. And, and ultimately that that enables people to live better lives. We've been speaking with Peter McGuire on Wardox. Pete, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on the show. And thank you for your service and everything you've done for the nation. Thanks so much, guys. I, I've really enjoyed this and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.